Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Hi, it's Brendan here. I just wanted to tell you about how you can help Spiked. Spiked is free. We have no paywall, no subscription model. We want everyone to be able to read our commentary and listen to our podcasts. And that's why we will be staying free. And you can help us to do that by making a donation. To those of you who already donate, thank you very much. We really couldn't do what we do without you. To those thinking of donating, how about doing it today? The best kind of donation is a regular monthly one. Donating as little as £5 a month can make a huge difference to what we do. So if you'd like to join the band of people who help to keep Spiked free and thriving, just go to www.spiked-online.com and hit the big red donate button. And now, on with the show. Most people won't know anyone who's died of COVID. Most people won't know anyone who's even been very sick with COVID. But every single person in this country come 2024 will know someone affected by the lockdown. They will know someone who's had mental health problems. They will know someone who has lost their job. They will know someone whose business has collapsed. They will walk past the boarded up shops and the pubs in their high street. And that is what they're going to vote on in 2024. And I think the government are being very, very short-sighted in thinking that they are going to, for want of a better phrase, get away with it. Hello and welcome to The Brendan O'Neill Show with me, Brendan O'Neill. This is a podcast in which an esteemed guest joins me to talk about the big ideas, the bad ideas, the problems and the controversies of life in the early 21st century. In this episode, I am delighted to be joined by Julia Hartley Brewer. Julia is a broadcaster, commentator and columnist. She has worked at numerous newspapers, including The Evening Standard, The Guardian and The Sunday Express. She has hosted TV documentaries and appeared on numerous political panel shows. She is now best known for her brilliant breakfast show on talk radio in which she dissects the issues of the day and often sets the journalistic agenda through her interviews with leading politicians. This is the third time Julia has appeared on The Brendan O'Neill Show with her cutting criticisms of the excesses of woke politics and the dangers of censorship. She is always a welcome guest. So Julia, we are heading towards Christmas and we live in a country in which actual government officials are telling us who we can celebrate Christmas with, how many people, what relatives we should hug and which relatives we shouldn't hug, whether or not a scotch egg counts as a substantial meal when we go to the pub. And if it doesn't, we can't actually go to the pub. How have we ended up in this situation nine or so months on from the first lockdown? Why are we in a situation where government officials are micromanaging the most important holiday of the year? I want to laugh, but <laughs> but actually I fear I may burst into tears. I'm despairing at the moment. Mm. I veer between sort of anger and despair and just utter bemusement at where we are right now. I mean, forget Christmas and Scotch eggs. 
It's our entire lives. This idea that people are saying, oh, you think you've got a right to spend Christmas with your families or go to a pub at one minute past 10 o'clock. Who do you think you are? Bloody free person living in a free democracy in the 21st century. That's how I bloody am. I think it is extraordinary. We have gone from just a few years ago, we've from, hey, oh, just here, less than a year ago, battling to take back control mm. because we didn't want EU in charge of what we did in this country and how our government was run and how our lives were run by Parliament to a point where we seem to be, as a population, just happy to hand over every single aspect of our lives, whether our children can go to school, um, whether mm. or not we should get a vaccine or not, whether a medical treatment, whether we should be allowed to walk down a particular street at a particular time, whether we're protesting or not, whether we want to have a drink, whether we want to have a scotch egg with or without a pint or a pint with or without a scotch egg, whatever the rule is this <laughs> week, because it'll change by the time the podcast has come out. And again, who we can spend Christmas with and where. This is so ridiculous. There is not a single day that goes by uh, these days when I, I don't think that if, if a year ago I had even put any of the items I put on my radio show onto the running order, if someone had even mentioned those to me on Twitter, I would have laughed in their face about what a crazy, dystopian, stupid idea that was for a science fiction film and no one would ever believe it. <laughs> And here we are. And this is our reality. Are. And I don't know how we got here. But more worryingly, I don't know how we get out mm. of it. Absolutely agree. I want to talk to you a bit about how we get out of it. Or is there a single politician in the country who we can trust to help us get out of this? But first, I, I do want to ask you about how we got here. Because I'm, I'm like you, and we talk about this fairly frequently. It, it's mystifying to me. The, the swiftness with which this happened, the intensity with which it's happened, the thoroughness with which every aspect of our lives has been thrown open to the most minute form of policing you could imagine. So let's just talk a little bit about how we got here. So if we, if we rewind to March this year, there were some people like me who were a bit skeptical from the very beginning. There were other people, including you, who were open to the idea of a short, sharp lockdown for the narrow purposes of ensuring that the NHS isn't overwhelmed. And that made sense to so many people. Lots of people were thinking, fine, that seems perfectly logical. Three weeks, give the NHS a break, build up resources, and then we'll go back to normal. Those three weeks turned into three months, turned into six months, turned into nine months. Now we're being told it's next spring. Who knows when we're going to get out of it? So did the government just lose its nerve? Did it accidentally wander into this dystopian nightmare? Or has there always been an authoritarian streak here? What's your thought on how we how we blundered into this situation? Yeah, I mean, you and I did come from a different perspective on this mm. early on. I'm a GP's daughter. I'm, I've been brought up to trust what doctors say and trust the scientists. And, and, and I was looking at what was happening in China and then in Italy. And yeah, it seemed to me that, yeah, we, you know, we really did need to get on top of this. I had a friend very early on who died with, I don't know, off, but with COVID. I caught COVID a week before we went into lockdown. My whole family did. We were at a super spreader event. Turned out not to be a bad thing in retrospect. <laughs> so I was very aware, you know, this was a real virus. I also come from the perspective that I am, despite being a haggard old hack of many years standing, and despite all the reason I have been given by politicians every single day and every week and every month and every year of my political journalism life, I'm still really trusting of people. I'm, mm. I'm a really honest person myself, probably do honest most of the time. And therefore, I tend to be quite trusting of people. 
And I slap myself in the face of that every day for, for not being more cynical. I'm not a conspiracy theorist. I don't mm-hmm. think that our politicians have got a really cunning plan and they've been cooking it up for years on end to have this big great reset and this big takeover of our bodies and our lives and the world and the economy. And the reason I don't think that is because they're not clever enough. <laughs> it's not a it's not a benign thought that they really are not clever enough, forward thinking enough, they're not organised enough, they're just not capable of this, they're muddling mm. through. And I completely understand why mistakes were made early on. It was a really scary time. People were bloody dropping like flies. We saw what happened in Italy. We saw the body bags. We we knew that China had been lying to us about how bad it was. And I think that it was a perfectly, at the time, and I think even in retrospect, reasonable thing to do to say, look, you know what? We've got an an under-resourced NHS. We are going to have to upgrade. We are not in a position we're going to have to slow the spread of the virus. But it was very clear, wasn't it? It was suppressing the virus so that we we basically didn't have everybody getting ill at the same time. It was never about, and you can go back to listen to what Patrick Valance, the chief scientific advisor, said at the time. It was never about, you know, we would go in forever. It was a three-week lockdown. I did know it wouldn't be just three weeks. I'd spoken to enough epidemiologists by then to know that it wasn't going to be just three weeks. But I thought, you know, uh, six weeks maybe, and then we start coming out. I I don't think in my wildest nightmares I thought we would be where (laughs) we are. But certainly within eight weeks, I was completely aware that there was no route out. There was certainly not a scientific route out and that this was very much a political decision. And when we talk about the route out being you know, a vaccine or, or mass testing or the virus disappearing miraculously like no other virus has ever done, I know that that's not going to be the way out. It was a political decision to lock us down and deal with the virus this way. And it will be a political decision for us to get out. And no amount of hospital data no amount of vaccines is going to get us out of this unless or until our politicians are persuaded, forced, required to beaten down to stop doing this to us. Mm-hmm. But I think, unfortunately, that is going to mean the British public is going to have to stop letting it happen first. Mm. I completely agree with you about this not being a conspiracy. I mean, and actually the conspiracy theorists are starting to get on my nerves. (laughs) I understand why some people fall for those because everything has been so confusing and mystifying. And there are lots of people out there thinking, why on earth has this been done to us? Why is my business being destroyed for a virus that most people survive? So when you don't have clear answers to those basic questions, people can go down the rabbit hole of conspiracy theories and looking for an explanation. So I understand why that exists. But I find it quite annoying because I agree with you. The government is not capable of organising something like this, and it does. It's like seem people to thinking me... that nine eleven was a conspiracy. Yeah, they they can't keep this stuff quiet. They can't keep a quad <laughs> no. meeting quiet about the second no, lockdown right. for twenty minutes. There's no way they could they could keep this conspiracy quiet. I mean, they're Absolutely. not up to it. They're not clever enough. That's the basic explanation. Absolutely. And in relation to that, just going back to March and April, I wanted to ask you about the role of the media in that period. Because one thing that struck me when I think back to that time 
it actually was a scary time. I'm not a particularly fearful person, but I remember watching the news reports. If you watch Sky News, they have everything on a loop and they'd have all this stuff from Italy, which was just horrifying. And then you thought, oh God, it's happening here too. And then you had the daily press conferences where the government would tell you how many people had died and, and some in the media were waiting for it as if it was like a sports result and they couldn't wait to put it on the front pages or on the top of their websites. And it was, I know loads and loads of people who stopped watching the news because it was making them feel ill. And it was incredibly isolating, quite scary. People felt like society had spun out of control. In relation to the question of why the government's staggered from three weeks to six weeks to three months to almost a whole year, do you think the media played a role in that? And, and the, the way in which they were constantly barking at the government, lock down now, go harder, do more, you're going to kill people. Did they, did they succumb to that kind of pressure? I, th- I think absolutely. I think the media, come the public inquiry, I think the media has an awful mm. lot to answer for. Yeah, I, I was absolutely one of those early on. I wasn't demanding a lockdown. I, I, I was talking to experts about it. I, I didn't question, I didn't sort of criticise the idea of it at the time. It seemed like a, a as I said, a logical thing to do at the time. I remember being really quite tearful sometimes watching some of those press conferences. And I, I, I hosted my talk radio show in, in the room I'm recording this podcast in three and a half hours uh, every single morning for three months mm. at home. I mean, and for three weeks when I was really, really quite unwell, just sitting in here sort of, you know, with hot water bottles and tea and, and <laughs> just sort of trying to get through a show. And and it was an incredibly emotional time. And I think, mm. you know, journalists aren't immune to that. However, the obsession with the numbers, the obsession that has carried on even today. And the, the disappointment, I mean, I watched the Sky mm. News report the other day and about death numbers had gone down by sort of 20, 25% or something, which is great news. I mean, it's terrible for the people who died. Of course it is. No one's pretending, you know, oh, it's good news, only 250 people have died or whatever. But there was obvious disappointment that the numbers mm-hmm. had gone down and there is glee when the numbers go up and then and when the numbers go down it's not as big a story and i go back to my local newspaper training when it bleeds it leads yeah I mean, sky news and the bbc became addicted to the drama yeah. addicted to ever worse stories and when the stories weren't bad enough well, we'll have to go back to that hospital in Italy and see how badly yeah. they're doing still. When we didn't get enough deaths in the summer, well, then it was long COVID. Look at all these poor people who, who've got terrible, long-standing problems. Well, as if as if flu and other serious diseases don't leave people with long-standing problems. They are constantly looking for the worst. And the only time they ever look for the better is the vaccine. And then they are willing to sort of, you know, take any good news at all and totally mm. overplay it in terms of what, how it will actually change people's lives. You know, I think the media has been extraordinary that every single press conference for quite a few months now, I spent the entire press conference that Boris Johnson or Matt Hancock does tweeting madly, will one journalist please <laughs> ask for the evidence for this policy? And no mm. one ever does. I mean, we finally had this sort of impact assessment that the, the MPs have been demanding. I mean, frankly, my 14-year-old could have done it as a geography project. I mean, it's it's literally not worth the paper. It's printed on it. It's just a little complete nonsense. God, it actually has a paragraph saying, well, it's a bit too complicated. We can't do an economic assessment. Sorry. You think, on what planet can you have a policy that closes down huge sections of our economy and say, yeah. Mm, can't really work out how much this is going to cost. I mean, that is so off the scale of, of sane. It's crazy. But then you never hear journalists. You never hear, you know, Laura Kunzberg or Beth Rigby or any of the health journalists, God forbid the health journalists that would ask questions, whether for them to actually say, 
What is the evidence that this policy is going to save more lives than it's going to cost? What is the evidence that this lockdown or this circuit breaker, this fire break, all these other nonsense, complete new inventions that have no meaning whatsoever, that it's actually going to save lives as opposed to delay the spread of the virus? They don't ask the question. And I'm thinking, you're a journalist. How do you Mm. not want to know the answer to that question? There is no policy that the government announces that I don't want to know. How much does it cost? What's good about it? What's bad about it? Why are you doing it? No one's asked any of those questions in the whole of the last nine months. Absolutely. And the really striking thing about that, of course, is that these are the same kinds of people who for the past decade or so have been going on about the importance of evidence-based politics and everything having to be assessed to within an inch of its life. And suddenly they've completely abandoned that. And, And in fact, this brings me on to the next question I wanted to ask you. It's now reached a situation where people who do raise those questions are seen as the bad people. COVID deniers, apparently. COVID deniers. And if you want an impact assessment on these things, then you're part of a big problem that is is holding back the government from saving lives. Brendan, don't you care about people dying? (laughs) Exactly. Don't you? I mean, that's what I get. I genuinely get people tweeting me saying, saying don't you know, oh, you, you, you're just one of those heartless people. I was tweeting the other day about masks and about how actually there is no evidence that masks, have, well, there's, there's no study proving that masks actually protect the wearer. That's the end of the latest Danish study. But there's also no actual, really objective, clear study showing that they protect other people as well. Um, Now, I'm willing on balance to think that there's a good chance that they might protect other people. And I wear my mask. I'm legally required to obey the law. But that doesn't mean we have to pretend that there's evidence for it. And and when you say, well, there isn't, and people say, oh, oh, you selfish woman. (laughs) Well, no, I, I mean, it's not selfish to talk about facts. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you, with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger For the ones who get it done. If we go back to March and April, and actually longer than that, I think another side of the story, alongside the media going mental, essentially, and politicians losing their nerve, the other side of it, I think it really demonstrated something you and I have talked about at length for a long time, which is the dangers of censorship. Because we had a culture in which anyone who said, listen, is the lockdown the right thing to do? Should we be trying something else? A lot of people were shut down. You were called a COVID denier. You got a lot of this stuff and you're still getting it. Anyone who raises questions is seen as an evil person, a granny killer, doesn't doesn't care about human life. And I think that creates a culture in which lots of, not necessarily you and me and and people we know, but it makes lots of people feel fearful about raising essential questions. So I think part of the problem about how we've ended up where we're at today 
is precisely that if you don't have an open, honest, evidence-led discussion about these decisions, i.e. freedom of speech, you can actually get into really serious trouble. Yeah, absolutely. And and why is anyone worried about uh, answering questions if they're very sure of their position as well? Mm. And and I also found it extraordinary how often the case was made that, oh, oh well, it's X saying it, so therefore it's rubbish because that person doesn't have an epidemiology degree. I constantly, I get fact-checked by the BBC. They don't fact-check Carl Hennigan, the professor of evidence-based medicine at Oxford, <laughs> even if it's his work that I'm quoting on air when I'm asking <laughs> cabinet minister a question. And I would say to them, why are you not questioning this? I genuinely, I had a, I had an email from the people at the fact-check at the BBC the other week asking me for evidence for stuff I was saying about the, the false positive rate and raising questions about the false positive rate of the PCR test and then there are lots of there are lots of questions i'm not an expert in in this sort of testing i don't claim to have any scientific or data or any expertise in this field whatsoever but my argument is i can read and i can add up i can look yeah. at a graph i can see if something is going up or going down i can i can do some basic mathematics and that's all you need to be able to read some of these studies and i talk to the experts on either side and i, I put their arguments to and fro and see which ones i think are more convincing but when I actually went back to them and gave them all the evidence, they wrote their usual piece they were going to write anyway. Um, but I've asked them since, when are you going to do the fact check on Boris Johnson telling 14 million people on live television on a Saturday night that they've got a computer model saying that 4,000 people are yeah. going to die a day, more than were dying in Brazil, more than yeah. were dying in India at the peak of the epidemic. When are you going to do that fact check? But funnily enough, they don't fact check the Prime mm. Minister. They don't fact check Patrick Vallance and Chris Whitty, even though an awful lot of what they say, it's not a matter of opinion. It is provably on the data that they themselves cite untrue. Yeah. I often think when I talk to cabinet ministers, I had Michael Gove on my show today, who's very, mm. very important in terms of he's in the quad, along with Matt Hancock and Rishi Sunak and Boris Johnson, that decides basically to put us in lockdowns or not. And he was saying to me, oh, I'm sure you don't have the ONS data to hand, but the, the ONS data was showing us before we decided on a lockdown that, that it, the infection rates were doubling. And I said, well, actually, I do have it to hand. And, and it was about 55,000 down to 45,000. And I said, well, not only was it not doubling, it was halving. He said, well, no, it was doubling. I went, but I've just read out the ONS <laughs> data that you were citing. And, and it, it's almost like, this is why I always think we are in Alice in Wonderland territory. It's almost yeah. like, do they not know that we can see it too? Yeah. I mean, do they not know that, that those numbers on that official data, whether it's Department of Health or Public Health England or ONS or the REACT study or the Zoe app study from King's College, whatever it is, do they not realise that, that we can see the data as well? <laughs> and they can't just say, oh, this is all the data says. Well, yes, yeah. that's what you say it says, but I'm looking at it and it doesn't say that. Well, what's extraordinary, I think, firstly, that's extraordinary. They seem to think we can't see this stuff or they seem to think we're all just idiots who will suck in whatever they tell us. But also, you know, the 4,000 figure, the idea that 4,000 people in Britain would die a day from COVID, which was obviously such a fantasy and has completely been shot down. It was uh, shot down within hours. Within hours, it was just completely fell apart. And, and to my mind, that was the government's dodgy dossier moment. That was the moment at which they said something that was patently untrue, which they must have known was untrue. Patrick Vallance and Chris Whitty stood next to the Prime Minister as he said that on Saturday night on television and told the nation, we have to lock down, we're going to kill off the economy. God knows how many you know, other people are going to, you know, have their lives and livelihoods affected. And they stood there and let him use that, that, that stat. He could not possibly have had that stat unless they had given it to him. Yeah. They knew. It is, it is not possible for two men 
with their qualifications and their backgrounds to not have known that that data was absurd, ridiculous, never going to happen. And also the fact that that was from a computer model, which had been updated not once, but twice since that 4,000 figure had come about, because that data had already been superseded by the facts, which was that the predictions they had had for that, that very day was predicting a 1,000 deaths a day. And we were at roughly 200 a day at that point. So they already knew that computer modeling was wrong. To me, that is sacked on the spot territory. Mm-hmm. And probably, I think we should be in some sort of criminal prosecution territory, to be honest with you. I, I, I think it is criminal what the government is doing. Uh, mm. I think there's a difference between interpreting facts differently. I think it is perfectly valid for someone to say, I don't want a single person to die of COVID. And I am willing to throw the entire British economy under a bus and children's education, and and I'm going to live with the fact that tens of thousands more people are going to die of heart attacks and untreated cancer and suicide and goodness knows what for years to come. And children being born in the next 10 years are going to live longer, less healthy lives because of the effects of what we're doing now uh, on the economic ability of the country to, to, to provide the health care and education. I'm willing to do all of that because I don't want people to die of COVID. That's my responsibility. I I think that's a really strange (laughs) position to have, but it's a perfectly coherent position. What is not reasonable for a a government minister to say is, I'm going to look at all of the facts that show me, as they can't possibly not know now, that the damage that is going to be done from lockdowns and tier restrictions is going to vastly, vastly outweigh the good that they do, but I'm going to do it anyway. Mm. Uh, That, to me, Mm. is not acceptable. Absolutely. I completely agree. And in relation to that question of the impact of what they're doing, I wanted to ask you about that because the impact of what they're doing in my mind is extraordinary and we don't know the half of it. I mean, as you say, this is going to have an impact for a very long time in terms of untreated illnesses, despair, mental illness, unemployment, poverty, all the problems that that gives rise to. I mean, Rishi Sunak has now pointed to some of this by saying there will be 3 million unemployed at some point. And the the thing I found sick making about that was so many people in the media saying, oh my God, really? Oh, they were absolutely shocked, weren't they? <gasps> Isn't it terrible that people are going to lose their jobs? Like, yeah, no shit, Sherlock. Yeah. Yeah. How can this possibly be happening? <laughs> I wanted to ask you about that because this is the thing I struggle to understand because it seems pretty clear to everyone that the lockdowns are having a devastating impact on communities, on jobs, on children's education. We know children are months and months behind where they should be, especially working class and poorer children, because they don't get the same education standards at home when they were in lockdown. So we all know the consequences. We all know what's happening. But trying to factor those into the discussion or trying to centre them into the discussion is incredibly difficult because people will say COVID, COVID, COVID. And, and of course, the NHS for a period of time became the national COVID service and wasn't treating anything else. In your view, how did we come to focus so much on one virus? Did we just get swept up in the moment, swept up in the culture of fear? Why did we drop everything, including the economic future of this country, in the name of fighting this one virus? I think swept up is, is exactly what did happen. We did get swept up in this in this fear. And I think we've all seen an awful lot of Hollywood movies about some awful mm. global pandemic. I mean, one of the biggest films on Netflix early on in the pandemic was that film pandemic. I didn't 
didn't watch it. Good God, I've got enough reality. I don't want to watch <laughs> that in fiction. Frankly, I'd rather watch another episode of Friends and have a little bit of fun. <laughs> I do think people got swept up in it. And I think also a lot of it comes down to the fact that not many people, and, you know, maybe you and me included, are not really aware of the reality of everyday life, which is things like roughly 1,700 people on average die every single day of various different Mm. illnesses that, you know, if you don't get treated early on for lots of diseases, you will die. And if you do get treated early on and you spend more money on your health service, you do actually see more people living. I think um, a lot of people are totally unaware of, you know, the number of very, very elderly, very sick people who succumb every single winter to, frankly, a bad cold, let alone even flu. I've got an elderly aunt in a care home, so I've, I've been very aware, and she spent three months in hospital a year ago. So I, I was in a every single day, pretty much in a ward full of geriatrics with Alzheimer's and the like, and really saw the full reality of how frail these people are. It didn't surprise me at all how quickly they were succumbing mm. uh, to this horrible disease. But I think yeah, people just got caught up in it. And, and I think there's an element for a lot of people where it was just very scary. We didn't know much about this. Um, we were being told by people who we trust, scientists, doctors, politicians, um, those, you know, that nice lady on the telly, that it was terrible and we, and we needed to act. But there was also an element, I think, where for a lot of people, they get caught up in the drama that people want to be a big part of things. And there was in the first wave and in the first lockdown, there was an incredible camaraderie. I went out and mm-hmm. clapped for carers, not for the mm-hmm. NHS, I clapped for the carers, mm-hmm. waving to your neighbours. You'd never perhaps, you know, I live in London, you don't know all your neighbours, you hadn't really spoken to them before. That feeling of, of being part of something, of doing something that was saving lives, that feeling that, that we were all in this together. And particularly after the horrible, horrible battles we had over Brexit in 2019, I think lots of us felt, and I'm sure I spoke to you about it on my show at one point, but mm-hmm. we felt that we were, communities were coming together and there was a bit of a healing and we were on the same side and we had a real battle to fight and, and it felt good at times. And I think there's also another element, and I think this is a huge element for the media and the political class who, who decided all of these things, is that um, it's not that bad not that bad. If you've got a guaranteed job, no one in the media mm-hmm. is, is really, I mean, not maybe a few, few youngsters on, on, on websites, but largely the, the media class are doing pretty well. Thank you very much. They've kept their work. The political class obviously got their work. Anyone in the public sector, well, well they're being offered bonuses by Nicola Sturgeon, for goodness sake. And if you live in, you know, as I do, I live in a nice home. I've got a happy marriage. My child is at a private school. So lucky her. She had six hours of lessons online every single day every single day of lockdown. It's not so bad. We, we had a lovely big garden. We went for some lovely walks on Hampstead Heath in the middle of the day. It was lovely. And I think for an awful lot of people, lockdown wasn't such a bad experience. And unfortunately, those are the people who influence a lot of our policy. You know, I sorted out all the drawers, you know, I sorted out my finances. <laughs> and I think lots of people did that. And I think they completely forget that the vast majority of people in this country don't work in the public sector. They don't have secure work. They live in much, much smaller homes. Many don't have gardens, certainly in big cities like London. Their kids are at state schools, lots of which abjectly failed beyond criminal, abjectly mm-hmm. failed the, the children. We saw domestic abuse go up. We saw depression go up. We, we saw people being trapped in their homes, unable to work, people losing their jobs, losing the businesses they've spent years and years building up. And, and I think the media class and the political class were just totally and utterly unaware of this. They were totally yeah. new to this from their lovely, safe world where, oh, well, we're all queuing up outside Gail's Bakery in the sunshine while we're on our walk. And I just don't think they live in the real world. 
Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional grade industrial supplies. Count on real time product availability and fast delivery. Call clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of $15,178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE or Summit 4xE. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. I think that is such a key part of all of this. The fact that there were people out there who were enjoying lockdown yeah. and three months off for them was really, really nice. Because as you say, some of these people have comfortable lives. They live in comfortable homes. They could either carry on working or stop working entirely and carry on getting paid. And they knew there was a job when they went back to their public sector job or whatever else it might be. And that wasn't the case for lots of other people. And th the thing that struck me is, you know, the lockdown was always a partial lockdown, right? There was never any discussion about locking down dustbin men, for example, <laughs> yeah. who, who, do, who play an incredibly important role. It was role. far and too dangerous for anyone to leave their house, yeah. <laughs> except the, the people working in the Amazon factory, you know, and, yeah. well, you know, the factories and the Amazon distribution centres and the drivers and the supermarket workers and the food workers yeah, and the people working in the restaurants who were doing the take. All of those people, you know, we were quite happy for them to carry on work. Yeah. It was definitely absolutely. too dangerous Every for us to be out. Absolutely. Every Monday when the dustbin men come to the, I'm, I'm sure there's a far more PC term for dustbin men now, but I'm an 80s person. That's how we refer to them. <laughs> They'd come to my apartment block and empty the bins. And can you imagine if people like that stopped working, right? Well, we know what it would be like from the late 1970s, right? It would be a disaster. The country would go downhill very, very quickly. So one of the important parts of lockdown, I think, was this class divide. And actually, it highlighted some of the things that people like you and I talked about during the Brexit period, which was the existence of this kind of chattering class, this new elite, who have no understanding at all of how other people live or what other people think. But one question I wanted to ask you in relation to that is the question of why there wasn't more tension over this situation. Why wasn't there more tension over the fact that the opinion forming set and the, and the experts who advised the government and lots of public sector workers were swanning around parks or getting their delivery meals, et cetera, and everything was quite nice, making their sourdough bread and sharing it on Instagram. And it was all lovely for three months, whereas lots of other people were either losing their jobs or working as hard as ever. Yeah. Why do you think there wasn't a tension or do you think there will come a point at sometime in the future when that tension will blow up? Oh, that tension is a coming. Oh, Absolutely. Again, I think these people don't really have a voice. When working class, ordinary people's voices are on, on the mainstream media, it's nearly always mm. like, oh, isn't he a wonderful hero raising money for charity during that walk, isn't it? And, oh, we're clapping for the cares. You know, you, you, nurses, you know, you always hear about nurses. Like, I mean, my sister-in-law's a nurse. My mum's a doctor. I, you know, I understand, you know, how hard they work, but th there's just been so little about ordinary people losing their jobs and, and again, they, these people weren't visible, were they? Even most of the job losses we're seeing now, we've just had um, Arcadia, you know, Topshop and Dorothy Perkins and Burton going under, um, although the shops are still open, and Debenhams now as well. And 
And of course, it's only when you see sort of you know, 13,000, 12,000 job losses in, in a big lump that people really sit up and pay, and pay any attention. Mm. Whereas actually, you know, the, the hundreds of thousands of small businesses have had to let one or two people go or four people go. Most people don't work for yeah. a big high street chain. Uh, most people don't work in, say, you know, a steel works. You know, we, oh, I mean, the big fuss when 5,000 steel workers might lose their job. But let's not worry if, you know, everyone who works in a pub loses their job. I think people have just been totally invisible. But again, I think the reckoning is coming. I really think it is. Um, I've been tweeting out to MPs in a quite threatening way. Um, I'm doing a bit of carrot and stick. If you have, you know, <laughs> if you vote against the restrictions, I'll buy each and one of you a pint because also you're going to be the only MPs not barred from every pub in the country. And genuinely, I want, if you are a Republican, if you're a landlord or landlady listening to this podcast, never allow a single MP who voted Absolutely. for these restrictions in your pub. Ban them for life. <laughs> They need to, they need to pay for this. But I've also been saying, you know, we will remember, please don't yeah. think that we will forget this. And I've tried to get this through to so many MPs. And again, I think it's different for different MPs. Labour MPs, you know, they're abstaining on the restrictions vote. Keir Starmer's basically saying, well, you, you shouldn't have done it like this. You should have done it like I, I like I said you should do. You know, the, the Welsh lockdown, the, the circuit breaker, that, that provably didn't work, but he still thinks if we'd done mm. it, then it would have worked. I mean, nonsense stuff. But the Tory MPs are responsible. They are in power. The government is in power. And I keep saying to them, here's the thing. In four years' time, in 2024, when we have our general election, I mean, there are going to be issues at the local elections in May, uh, certainly if Nigel Farage and Richard Tice get their act together with Reform UK and they're already recruiting candidates. Again, I think we may be in European election territory, 2019 territory again very soon. But let's look even ahead to the 2024 general election. The number of votes that the Labour Party would have to get to overturn the Boris majority of 80 is so huge. It's so unprecedented that even if the Tories completely bugger up, they're very likely to win again. Except, except if there is an alternative and except mm. if voters really do remember. Now, here's my my, my thesis here, which is that I know people who've died of COVID. I, I know people, other people who know people who've died of COVID. And there will be a number of people who do. But even at the, you know, even if we see another 20,000, most people in this country will not know anyone who has died of COVID. And the vast majority of people who do know anyone who's died of COVID, it'll be someone they know's grandmother or grandfather or someone. It'll be, it'll be two or three states apart. It will also almost entirely be elderly relatives, 70s or 80s, 90s, mm. who frankly they didn't think had long to go anyway. People are very sad about that. And it's very sad if anyone loses their life a year, even two weeks before they would otherwise have died. However, most people won't know anyone who's died of COVID. Most people won't know anyone who's even been very sick with COVID. Those are the statistics. But every single person in this country come 2024 will know someone affected by the lockdown. They yeah. will know someone who's had mental health problems. They will know someone who has lost their job. They will know someone whose business has collapsed. They will walk past the boarded up shops and the pubs in their high street. They will be paying the extra taxes because, yeah, the taxes are coming. They will be seeing the cuts in public services because there just isn't the money anymore. There won't be a single person in this country who won't be affected by the lockdown policy. And that is what they're going to vote on in 2024. They're not going to vote on the tens of thousands of people who died back in 2020. And I think the government are being very, very short-sighted in thinking that they are going to, for want of a better phrase, get away with it because they mm -hmm. saved some old ladies' lives from COVID. I don't think that's going to fly in 2024.
Absolutely. Completely agree with that. And I hope that's true. I, I really want to see that. Uh, some I'm a very big fan of punishing politicians. I, Absolutely. I thought the main reason I wanted Brexit was because I want to know that I'm, I have a partial role in getting that removal van <laughs> to Downing Street. <laughs> I want to know that I have some power, some small yeah. power along with everyone else in this country to put someone in 10, number 10 and to boot someone out of number 10. And, um, I, I just don't think that anyone who's experienced lockdown is going to, not want to punish this. Now, it may may be that they don't want to vote for the Labour alternative because Labour, I think, would have been far worse. I mean, I still think that it could have been a lot worse than it is. But that doesn't mean they're not going to punish. Absolutely. I I think that's very true. One of the things I find incredibly frustrating, and I know you've had this experience too, is anyone who criticises the lockdown in any way at all is seen as someone who doesn't think COVID is a real virus or who doesn't care about people's lives and so on. Now, you and I have have said this until we're blue in the face. We know that COVID is a real virus. We know it's contagious. We know that it has a, a higher death rate amongst older people and amongst vulnerable people and that those people should be protected and shielded or offered the options to take that action for themselves. And they should be generously supported by the government if they want to do that. And I've always said that from the very beginning. But one of the impacts I want to talk about, the the thing that actually makes me nauseous when I think about it is the way in which the lockdown lobby will often say, you hate old people and that's why you criticise the lockdown. But when you think about the impact that lockdown has had on older people, and this is older people in the community, many of whom have had very little contact with friends. I mean, I always think of the three or four old men I'd see in my local pub at lunchtime, if I ever popped in, they'd always be there with a newspaper, usually on their own in a pint, probably widowers getting out. This was their way of having contact with the world. I often think what became of them when pubs shut down? I mean, presumably they just went home and did absolutely nothing. Or if you think of older people in care homes, some of whom have Alzheimer's who think that they've been abandoned by their families because they just haven't had visits, who are deeply confused, who are have been plunged into despair in the last months of their lives. And that's another side of this impact. I think when come the inquiry or come the reckoning, we have to talk about the fact that it was often the lockdown fanatics who caused greater harm yeah. to old people than any Thing that people like you and me did. Oh, absolutely. I couldn't agree with you more. And as I say, you know, I've got an elderly aunt in a care home now. I, I, I know exactly what's going on and I know, you know what it's like when I when I have to sort of pretend to be delivering something so I can say, like, meet, meet me in reception. And uh, so I, I wouldn't touch her. I wouldn't go near her. I'm always be careful. I'm wearing my mask mm. and being good. Mm. Uh, or having a conversation standing on the main road, chatting through the window, but just so I can wave to her. Yeah, I think it's heartbreaking. I, I mean, I'm hoping for those old men in the pub that they had neighbours like I imagine you or you and I both done and everyone listening has done. You get in touch with people who live nearby and just like, are you OK? Anything I can do? You know, I drop notes around to ne- elderly neighbours. Let me know You know, if we can help you with any shopping or anything you need done, we can help you. But also once we'd had COVID, saying, look, we, you know, we're safe. You know, if you need something done in your flat, we can come and do it or anything. You hope so. But but again, it's a lack of human contact. We know that low is a killer. This is well documented. And I, I you know, done that before COVID happened, we used to talk about this and how we need to be more aware that, that it's not uh, necessarily the heart disease, it's the loneliness that w- will kill somebody. And I, when I see um, the news and I see uh, elderly couples saying, well, not even often that elderly, even, you know, just sort of you know, mid 70s, we've not seen our families all year. Do you think, 
Well, why mm. ever not? I mean, in the summer, why didn't you do it? We managed to sort of see in-laws and you know, we've got a granddaughter for them. You know, we know they wanted to see her. We tried to do everything to keep them comfortable with the level of safety. But there are millions of families who have not seen each other. Mm. And there will be, we know, lots of elderly people who will have died not having seen their loved ones because sure. of this. Nothing whatsoever to do with COVID. And I find it extraordinary that the people who are so sort of lockdown fanatic why they don't understand that life isn't just about being alive. Mm -hmm. We know that. This is well documented. The quality of life really matters. And there are an awful lot of people who I've spoken to in their 70s and 80s who said, frankly, you know, I'm not going to take stupid risks, but I'm not willing to live a life without other people. It's not worth my while. My own mother, who's yeah. a retired GP. She's not an idiot. And she was sort of shielding for a couple of weeks, not doing her own food shop or anything around the peak. And then she said, no, life's not worth living. I, I, yeah. I, there's no point to me being here if I'm not even allowed to leave my home. Mm -hmm. And made that decision, made that risk assessment herself about what she was willing to do or not do. And I think that's what most um, older people and most families have tried to do. But I just find it really bizarre we into this idea that simply being alive is all that matters, as opposed to living a fulfilling life with people that matter. Absolutely. Couldn't agree more. Okay, let's talk about something you kicked off with, which, which is the fact that this is fundamentally a political decision. This is not a scientific thing. It might be justified in scientific terms. It might have been whipped up by media storms of fear and everything else. But a political decision has been taken on a number of occasions over the year to lock down the country with all the consequences that that has had. So let's just talk a little bit about politics, something you talk about on your radio show all the time with cabinet ministers. And I want to ask you, what the hell has gone wrong with this government? Because if we cast our minds back to almost a year, December 2019, I'm not a natural conservative, but I was excited about the size of Boris's electoral majority, the obvious, clear democratic mandate he was given by millions of people, including millions of working class Labour voters, to get Brexit done, to take back control, to put this country back into being a sovereign, democratic, sensible country. And yet this government, I think you're right that Labour would have been even worse. I mean, under Corbyn but, or Keir Starmer, they would have been exactly, dire. Exactly, yeah. but this government who was supposed to take back control, I've never felt less in control of my life ever than I have in 2020. So what is that about? How did they shift so quickly? Did they just not believe the take back control thing or have they become lockdown fanatics? What's at the root of this government seemingly having lost its way so drastically? I ask myself that most days, and I ask <laughs> lots of politicians that are, are on air and, and privately, and I've yet mm -hmm. to get an answer. I think fundamentally, Boris Johnson doesn't believe in anything but Boris Johnson. I mean, I think we have to start from this. I, I was never, I always get these tweets from people saying, oh, you know, you own this, you voted for him. Well, yeah, people don't know how I actually voted, but I think it's a pretty good guess. I didn't vote for Jeremy Corbyn and I'm a Brexiteer. <laughs> so, you know, you know what, who do you think I voted for this time? But I've never been a, a, a someone who, I've never supped the Boris Johnson Kool-Aid. I've no. never really understood that. And let's be honest, most Tory MPs didn't either. They basically voted in as a Tory leader because... 
He was the most popular person with the party members, most popular person with the electorate, and he was their best bet of, of, of winning the next election. He was, just, I mean, and delivering Brexit. He was a, simply a vehicle for them getting what they wanted. But no one actually thought that Boris Johnson really staunchly believed in things. But I think we did think that he was, a, you know, a libertarian, a classical liberal by sort of character, by, you know, his philosophy. And, and yet, yes, it doesn't appear so. But I was quite encouraged early on with the lockdown that it looked to me like he was being dragged kicking and screaming yeah. into lockdown. And it wasn't something he wasn't going, oh, good, here's an opportunity for me to have to nanny state control people's lives, that he was something he was sort of pushing against this as much as he could against the sage scientists early on. And then once he sort of got captured, I do think he's got mm. captured by them. And then once he got COVID himself, I think he's been a changed man. He's, he's simply not the same person anymore. You know, he has, you know, I heard someone say the other day, which I thought was a great line, that the only people who haven't got Stockholm Syndrome, ironically, are the Swedes. But he <laughs> definitely has some version of Stockholm Syndrome. He's definitely been taken captive. Some of his um, videos, some of his press conferences, I mean, they, they do read like hostage videos. It's quite bizarre. My best explanation is that they kind of fell into this by accident. They panicked. Everyone else was doing lockdowns and everyone was shouting at them and they were scared and they didn't know what to do. So they did a lockdown and then it got worse. And then they didn't really know enough to, to, to get out of it. And then they have just spent the last six months trying to somehow go back and justify what they did first time round. I'm convinced yeah. that these restrictions and this lockdown we've just come out of and people in tier three, frankly, still in, is a sort of counterfactual sort of like, I don't know, it's sort of, see, see, we got you out, we got you out of another another wave going too high, exactly what we did first time round. Now, the fact that both the first wave and the second wave infections had peaked before there was a lockdown, and that's official data, not a matter of opinion, undermines that. And come the public inquiry, I have a funny feeling that, again, <laughs> that that's not going to look too good. But I think right now we are in one big, huge, unbelievably expensive in terms of lives and jobs and our economy, back covering exercise. Yeah. I think everybody involved, whether it's Boris Johnson, Matt Hancock, Patrick Valance, Chris Whitty, all of them right now are preparing their version of events, their opening statement for the public inquiry. That, that's all they're concerned about. And they want to be able to say, we did all that we could. And, and we need to do something. And this is something. Mm. So we, we did it. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware.
I can tell that people like you and me are actually really looking forward to this public inquiry because there are so many questions that need to be asked and answered. But I think a lot of what's happening now and a lot of what will happen over the next six months or longer will be about retrospectively justifying the decisions that were taken this year and which have clearly had such devastating consequences, which the government is aware of, as Rishi Sunak has made that clear, and others will make it clear too. And I think there's going to be a lot of retrospective justification for the decisions that were taken. And information will be found or massaged in such a way that it will make that look like the right thing to have done. But in relation to Boris, you say that Boris has only ever really believed in Boris. And I think that's absolutely true. One question I wanted to ask you, is Boris a bottler? Because the other thing, this year, firstly, I completely agree with you. If you look what he was saying in mid to late March this year, it was about not rushing into an Italian-style lockdown. It was more about seeing how things go. And it was there was even lots of discussion about letting the virus spread in a manageable way in order to establish herd immunity. There were all those discussions. And then he got jumped into psycho lockdowns for nine months. But then there's another issue, which is the woke stuff, which you and I talk about Mm. a lot. The BLM ripping down statues moment, all the trans discussions which have intensified this year, particularly around JK Rowling and other people who've been coming in for so much flack, lots of censorship issues, issues on which you might expect a prime minister who is supposedly un-PC and liberal to say something firm and strong. It's never really been forthcoming. He's backed off. He said the occasional thing, but generally speaking, he's backed off from those issues. Do you just think he hasn't got the nerve for this fight? Or is it possible he's more politically correct than we thought to begin with? Well, again, he was always, you know, metropolitan liberal elite, wasn't he? You've got to remember, he did get himself elected to, as, as a mayor of London, a very Labour voting yeah. city twice. And again, that's why I always thought it was rather bizarre. People said, oh, he's far right. Like, are you kidding me? He's, you know, he's very much <laughs> on the liberal wing of the Tory party. Again, I think maybe he's afflicted by that. Or I think it's a, it's a terrible, terrible affliction, the need to be liked. Obviously not something which I suffer, but it is a terrible affliction in politicians. And it's one of the main reasons a lot of them go into politics as well. It's like people going into be celebrities. It's because they want people to like them and think they're really nice people as opposed to do the right thing. I think he does think a lot of this stuff is, I mean, let's try to think of a Boris sort of word, bonkamar, balderdash, blah, blah, blah. But he, yeah, he's too, he's too wary of, of the leader writers of some of the newspapers. He's obviously yeah. a bit too wary of what people are saying on Twitter. He must know that the vast majority of people across the country, in every part of the country, even in Islington, even in Hampton, even the, the vast majority of those people think that, you know, men can't become women and that the police shouldn't be defunded and, uh, you know, that people shouldn't be sacked for expressing an opinion on, I don't know, toxic masculinity or something. I mean, mm. he must know that these are majority 95% level majority opinions, apart from Guardian leader writers' dinner parties and, and the BBC. <laughs> and Yet he's still fearful. I can't work it out. I, I, I would have thought these were easy battles for him to win yeah. and easy battles that he knows he needs to win for Tory voters, but also that he must also understand that these battles need to be won for the good of, of our democracy, the rights of free speech, of people being allowed to, these people who can go on about follow the science and use the facts and, and, and the like. The fact that, you know, you can get banned from Twitter for stating a biological scientific <laughs> fact about the difference between men and women. 
you know, that should worry people. I mean, you chuckle when I say that, but it's not funny anymore, is no. it? It's, it's, people are losing their jobs. And it's not just famous people who've said something stupid on the telly. It's ordinary people in ordinary jobs and people who are not getting sacked because they're too afraid to speak out. I do think that it is beholden on people who are in positions of power and who are you know, strong enough to say, you know what? I'll take the flag. People like you and me to speak out because someone's got to protect these fundamental freedoms. So at a time we're having our physical freedoms taken away in terms of who we can see, where we can see, where we can leave our homes, to, to also have the freedom of what we say and even what we think taken away. I mean, in Scotland, they're talking about, you know, criminalising people for what they say mm. in their own home to their families, for God's sake. Everyone talks about Orwellian and Big Brother in 1984, but... I mean, it's beyond that now. It's not, it's not a bit of it. We are doing stuff that we criticise the Chinese totalitarian murderous police state for doing. And we are on that road. And I, I started this podcast with you saying, you know, I despair. And I do. I, I, I find it extraordinary how few people, even supposedly well-educated, intelligent people, don't understand that freedom of speech doesn't mean just the freedom for people to say things with which you agree. Yeah. And I'm genuinely perplexed by this. I grew up in a family where we debated all the time. Christmas Day in my family, when we do spend all Christmases together, I tend to go abroad for Christmas, get a bit of winter sun, but there will be the most heated row about whatever the big issue is at the time, whether it's education or how you fund the health service or whatever. And we all come from many, many disparate views. People have lots of different political parties they support. And we go absolutely hammer and tongs on this stuff. And then it's like, oh, who wants coffee? <laughs> and, and, and no one dies. No one has to call the police. But, but we debate it and we listen to each other's points of views and we're not, we're not offended by people's point of views. I don't understand why everyone doesn't do that. And something you said there, I think, sums up the dystopian nature of this country, where the same people who will scream in your face, follow the science, obey <laughs> the science, lock yourself down, destroy your job, that's what science demands of you, will then turn around five minutes later and say that someone with a penis can literally be a woman. And and just this constant barrage of correct thought that is pushed at us, whether it's justified in terms of pseudoscience, kind of science, or just the pressure to conform to what is the current woke ideology. It's, it's really extraordinary. And I think you've touched on something so important, which is Boris must know, and if he doesn't know, then he really is an idiot, but he must know that the majority of people out there don't buy this stuff. They don't buy this woke nonsense. They don't buy the 72 genders thing. They don't buy in, into this stuff. And it strikes me, this, this is a question I wanted to put to you. There's still a massive disconnect between vast numbers of ordinary people who are very sensible and just are concerned about the economy, jobs, security, and having a good, nice life. Yeah. And a political class, which is constantly going down the rabbit hole of these cranky, eccentric, ridiculous, woke ideas. And I wonder if that suggests that Brexit may only have been the beginning of the shake-up of politics that we need because we've we've ejected or hopefully we've ejected Eurocrats from telling us what to do. But there is still that gaping chasm between the people who govern us, including 
supposed man of the people, Boris Johnson, and ordinary people. And so the failures in British politics are still there and Brexit is not going to fix them entirely. Yeah, although the people who want to tell us what we can and can't eat and tell our children that they're all racist and uh, mm. and everything from there. And again, I hate it when people say, speaking as a woman, but speaking as a woman, I am... I'm still flabbergasted by how many people who appear to be intelligent people who surely must have done biology at some point at school don't understand the <laughs> fundamental differences. There's one thing I want Donald Trump to do before January the 20th, and I'm delighted Donald Trump is, is leaving, whether he's dragged out by the Secret Service on the inauguration day or he, or he actually finally shows some class and, and that she concedes. If there's one thing I would like him to do, which I think would be hilarious, is I would like him to decide that he's going to self-identify as a woman. <laughs> and at that point, he says, according to what the Democrats think and what Kamala Harris apparently purports to think as, a, as the vice presidential candidate, elect, a man who says, I identify as a woman, is a woman, as not a, woman. a trans woman, is a woman. In that case, he at that point becomes the first female <laughs> president of the United States. <laughs> Would be too good. It would be too but good. But wouldn't that be wonderful? But Amazing. I'd love to see. I would love to see her argument against that. She, <laughs> you know, she is part of that whole far. You know, that lunatic. You know, right on. You know, gender identity. You know, left in in America. But when you actually put this to them, they they don't have an answer. Yeah. I, I, Donald Trump. Seriously, this would be such a cool thing to do. That would make it all worthwhile just to call their bluff. Because when their bluff's called, they go, oh, hold on a minute. No, they go on and on and on about first woman this, first woman that. Mm. But well, no, but any man can claim he's a woman under your, your ideology. And therefore that's never going to happen. Again, I keep saying it. I despair, but you're right. Boris Johnson knows. He knows it's nonsense. He knows most people think it's nonsense, but he wants to be liked by the people with whom he spends time. So when he's out on the campaign yeah. trail, which he hasn't done, of course, for, for a year, then he would say that. But, but when he's with his, you know, his right on little advisors and, uh, and, and his fiance, of course, who's, who's fairly right on, you know, on the Tory side, Carrie Simons, um, when he's with, um, all the civil servants and the like, he obviously, when he goes to the, I'm assuming they still have dinner parties. Who are we kidding? Uh, you know, the whole of North London is. <laughs> That he wants people to think he's a nice person and nice people don't criticize this stuff. Absolutely. He likes to flatter those kinds of circles that he moves in. And actually, it's kind of funny in one sense, but it's actually tragic in another because when you think of the millions of people who invested their democratic vote in him because they thought he would finally make their democratic ambitions come true and get this country back on the straight and narrow. And as you say, the, the further he moves away from those people, because he's not on the campaign trail anymore, the less interested he seems to be in their common sense way of understanding the problems facing this country. And the levelling up and all of that stuff. Again, there was lots yeah. of stuff that he said that he wanted to do. It wasn't just Brexit. It was about the culture wars and it was about yeah. having a fairer society, you know, quality of opportunity, not equality of outcome, which of course means, you know, don't have any control over your life at all. I mean, the, the, the choice was really bloody simple in December last year. You know, you had an anti-Semite idiot who was not going to deliver Brexit or, or you had Boris Johnson. I mean, those were the only two choices. So I'm I'm sorry, mm. I, I, I refuse to sort of be told that I made the wrong choice on that front. And I had really quite a high hopes for him. And even early on in the pandemic, as we were saying, I felt that he he came from it in, from a good place. And his, his instinct was to, to not control people's lives any more than was absolutely necessary. 
But again, I think people get addicted to power. They get addicted to the drama, politicians as well, and these terribly pompous and self-important press conferences in wood-panelled rooms. I mean, you, you know, lots of people asking you questions and the whole nation watching you, agog in their sitting rooms. I mean, you must feel terribly important. This is so much better than being a constituency MP on a Friday night, having, you know, Mrs Miggins come in and say, I've still got a problem with my noisy neighbour and the council won't do anything about it. I mean, it's so much more glamorous. I mean, this is the yeah. reason why prime ministers always get obsessed with foreign policy because domestic policy is, oh, it takes years. It, it's complicated. Right. It's boring. It takes decades to make real change. Foreign policy, one swipe of the pen, send the aircraft carrier, send the jets, and suddenly you achieve That's something. Right. Uh, politicians get addicted to doing something. And lockdown and restrictions, this is all doing something. And they feel important and they feel the polling tells them that they're doing stuff that the people want. The media are constantly saying, why aren't you doing more? Why aren't you doing more? Um, I mean, this is addictive. I mean, this is, you know, this is heroin levels of addiction to power <laughs> and action and, and attention. Can you imagine at what point a politician, whether it's Matt Hancock or Boris Johnson or, or Michael Gove, at what point would you go, do you know what, actually... I think we've made a horrible mistake. Mm. I think we should tell the British people, sorry about that. Um, we did it with the best intentions. We got a bit carried away with ourselves. We're ever so sorry, but we're going to now go back to the sensible strategy we started off with nine, ten months ago and see what the reaction is going to be. The media will go ballistic. The yeah. Labour Party will go ballistic because lockdown harder, sooner, deeper, longer, every single time. And the British public will have been told that we can't possibly survive and everyone's going to die if we're not in a lockdown. They'll be completely dumbfounded and cross and angry. Um, and the people like me and you who are angry about all the costs so far will be even angrier that they've known all along they got it wrong. There is no out other than the next lockdown. Yeah, that's <laughs> that right. That's the terrifying Absolutely. thing. Absolutely. Absolutely. What's the route out? I can't see the exit sign. We're on the motorway and we're in fog and we're hurtling along <laughs> at 200 miles per hour in our bloody eco car. And, and you can't <laughs> see the exit. There is no exit sign. This is it um, forever, Brendan, forever. We're going to be doing a podcast in two years' time going, <laughs> how do we get out of lockdown 47? On the question of the exit sign, my last question was going to be along those lines. So my, my last question for you is... And I hope this doesn't propel us into even deeper despair. But one of the striking things, I think, and one of the worrying things about politics today is that whoever we vote for, we seem to end up with the same kind of people, very green, increasingly right on, and Downing Street seems to be coming increasingly right on, either woke or not bothered about wokeness, whereas lots of people would rather that that stuff was shot down. You know, you vote... Brexit, you vote Labour, you vote Tory, you vote Lib Dem, you get the same thing. So that's worrying in itself. But do you think there's going to come a point when this will just become untenable? You've mentioned Farage and Tyson there, Reform Party. Lots of people around the country are going to become increasingly disgruntled with how the Boris government is going. Do you foresee a flashpoint or do you think we'll just stagger on with the two-party nonsense that we've had for the past few years? Well, we may end up going back to the two parties, but we're going to have the correction again, which we had, of course, which which Nigel Farage and the Brexit Party brought to us and UKIP before that. Yeah, I absolutely think they will. I, I, the British public 
and particularly the the private sector most hard hit by this and more likely to be. I, I've definitely detected a strong correlation between sort of Ramona EU FPP on Twitter fanatics <laughs> and the desperation for yet more lockdowns. And on the other side, the, the Brexiteers who, who think that we shouldn't be taking away our freedoms. We didn't fight that long for a Brexit to then have all those freedoms taken away. So I think this is another major cultural divide to split in the country. But the one thing that Brexit taught us was that it may take some time, yeah. We'll get our way. You know, we don't do the French thing. We don't have riots on the streets. Sometimes, I mean, I know you got in trouble for saying that, but sometimes part <laughs> of me is sort of thinking, God, maybe we should learn things from the French because the French do seem to sort of change their policies quite quickly. Uh, but, you know, I, I endorse people sticking to laws, change the law rather than break the law and certainly don't use violence. But I do think that the British public have been taught a really good lesson by the Brexit shenanigans, not just the referendum in 2016, but what we fought through for 2019. Actually, I mean, at the time it felt really hard and really despairing. I think actually it was one of the best things that ever happened. It showed that when we know what we want, when we're determined, and when we refuse to take no for an answer, we can push through and it may take time. Now, it's different from Brexit in the sense that Brexit could be delayed. My view was even if it was shot down, We'd have another referendum eventually, and we would get it eventually. I, I never had a doubt that once that cat was out of the bag in 2016, it was going to happen. This thing is very different. This is existential. This is mm. about literally people dying as a result of deliberate government policy, knowingly risking younger, healthier people's lives, millions of them, for the sake of the few tens of thousands of very elderly people who, who are dying very sadly of COVID. This is about people losing their jobs, losing their businesses. This is about children not getting educated, people not getting uh, treatment for heart disease or for cancer. Whatever. This is the here, this is the now, there is an urgency to it. And I think that feeling of urgency is beginning to come. I think MPs voting and rebelling, no matter how few there are, the fact that they do that, the fact that people like you and me are debating this stuff and people can see on social media, there are people People go, is this a good idea? The fact that the, the publicans and the retailers are speaking out and saying, no, this this is wrong. This is you can't do this to us. I think there is a real groundswell of, of rebellion, uh, for want of a better word. And I think that is going to grow and grow. But but I also think that that we will be able to use the ballot box sooner than the politicians like to think. I think they think they'll get away with it. But, um, you know, local elections, you trounce a party at local elections, they are massively damaged for the next few years and the next general election as well. I think that if Nigel Farage and Richard Tice get their act together for the Reform UK party, provide that alternative come May, most people think, oh, well, lockdowns will be over by then. Well, I mean, <laughs> do we really seriously think life is going to be back to normal by early May? I don't think it is. And in which case, I think that is going to be a very big issue. And it doesn't matter whether you agree with what Nigel Farage thinks about anything. The fact that there will be an alternative will focus Tory backbench MPs' minds. And even if the government wants to ignore it, it will focus their minds. And I think that things may well change on that front. But that requires there being a disruptor. I hope that does work, to be honest with you. I really do, because I, I, I really do think that this, this cosy, let's lock down, no, let's lock down harder, sooner, harder, longer, deeper option, I don't think is going to last that long once the real financial cost hits, because it hasn't hit yet. People are still on furlough. People still think, all these businesses thinking, well, we'll just last through till Christmas. When those shops mm. and those pubs 
don't actually see the business they hope to see because no one's having a Christmas party in a restaurant and things like that. When, when they don't see that, and we are going to see devastation on our high streets, devastations in our city centres, in our small village pubs. It's going to be across the board. It's going to be impossible to ignore. And at that point, I think an awful lot of people who've been very supportive of lockdown measures and restrictions will say, hold on a minute. Hold on a minute. Has this been worth it? And I think revenge is going to be very sweet. Julia, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Brendan O'Neill Show. We'll be back with another guest and more discussion. Don't forget to subscribe. And in the meantime, keep reading Spiked at www.spiked-online.com. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Tax day is coming. Oh, no. But if you sign up for Robinhood Gold's IRA with a 3% match, you can get up to $195 for the 2023 tax year. Oh, yeah. Sign up at Robinhood.com slash boost by tax day to get the biggest contribution match on the market. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Robinhood Financial LLC member SIPC. Get ahead of the postage rate increases this year with Stamps.com. It's like your own personal post office. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark.